Good evening, everyone. I'm so excited to be with here this Monday night. As you probably well know by now, it is President's Day. Lucky for us, our president is overseas in Ukraine at the moment. I guess I don't know if that's good or bad, but in either case, he's not here with us on this eventful and important historical day. I don't know why it's so important. We're actually going to talk about this on making the argument tomorrow with Nick Freitas. Um, I don't fully understand President's Day. I understand the desire to commemorate our dear leaders, but honestly, I feel like we've been giving the role of the presidency far too much importance over the last few decades, and I would like to see its power diminished, but that could be just me. Um, I'm so excited to talk to you, uh, talk to you guys tonight because we have some really interesting questions to examine about whether the right needs celebrities, about what the role of celebrities should look like, and we're going to talk about whether a company can survive without its founding member. I think the answer might surprise you guys, but we're going to look at that together. I had a really good article I want to start us off with tonight. This is something I was reading the other day when Andy and I were out for brunch. Um, this is from The Spectator. It's by it's from an author called Panda La Terrier. I have no idea what nationality that is or who what this person's gender is, but the article is really encouraging and it really matches exactly what the headline says, which is why Gen Z is turning against woke culture. It's a fairly short article. We'll do the whole thing. We made it into a cultural revolution and traumatized ourselves. The other day in a bar in London frequented by students of the infamously woke Goldsmiths University, I met a young white cis male who said that the English were to blame for his inherited trauma because of the historic oppression of the Irish. The only problem was he wasn't Irish. He was American, and so were his parents and probably grandparents. Pain, lost a long, pain lasts a long time, he assured me. What struck me about this encounter was not that it was typical of my Gen Z generation, but that it was so obviously cringe-inducing, a sort of hackneyed pickup line. Another student in the same bar, sporting an orange mullet and a thong as a t-shirt, I don't even want to think about how that works, tried to convince me my age was a social construct. It sounds like they didn't succeed. I would like for my age to be a social construct. Alas, biology would disagree. To me and many of my Gen Z peers who were born after 1996, such talk feels increasingly silly. A millennial trend that's gotten old and tired. The absurdity has become too glaring. If being distantly related to the Irish can engender self-compassion, could not my white Englishness be reframed as a form of victimhood? How can there be an end to oppression when the opportunities to be oppressed are so endless? Isn't that the core question? We feel as if we've run into a mental wall and the whole woke business is running out of road. Intersectionality, the academic word for the game of victimhood top trumps, which has dominated our discourse for so long, seems to have metastasized so much it makes no sense to anyone. New neurodiversities, new genders, new sexual orientations, new disadvantages are spawned every day. Actual poverty, the original disadvantage, is rejected at the victim card vending machine. Take millennial singer Harry Styles, who is known to wave a pride flag at almost every one of his concerts. Accepting his Album of the Year award at the Grammys last week, he said, quote, This doesn't happen to people like me very often, close quote. He was right. Boys from the Midlands who grow up working class in a single-parent household rarely reach the heights of fame and success that Styles has. But Styles had forgotten that no matter how androgynously he dresses, he is still white and a man and pale males aren't meant to talk about overcoming odds. 
Some of his fans, as Vogue puts it, can't quite believe anybody who looks like Styles, any homogenous white guy, has the audacity to publicly signal a lack of privilege. Clearly, Styles should have studied more. To be specific, he needed to be incubated on a campus environment with an obscene amount of free time and no desperate imperative to make money from around 2017 onward. This is where the millennial and Gen Z respective commitment to woke diverges. Millennials spoke out about race, feminism, sex, consent, and so on. The cohort that succeeded didn't reject their ideas, but they picked up that baton and ran with it in a million different directions. Gen Z has so complicated and corrupted the theories it inherited that none of us can even begin to understand anymore. I think that's right. It's gotten very complicated. The intersectionality is intersecting too much. Now, I was always optimistic that ultimately this would lead us back to the individual. But instead, what it seems what's happened here is that it's just confused people. Our university careers were spent in a state of intermittent abject terror. We were scared of committing cultural appropriation, of forgetting to wear our she-him stickers, of missing trigger warnings and contaminating safe spaces. We were scared of each other. Millennials, such as Styles and the other Harry, HRH for that matter, I'm not sure who that is, were able to popularize and profit from woke. We, on the other hand, have gone further, turned it into a cultural revolution and traumatized ourselves. Fast forward a few years and most of the older Zs find themselves disenfranchised with the, within the movement. Many of them, having just flown the nest in an increasingly expensive world, are experiencing the one setback that the religion of woke won't let them build a self-soothing identity out of, namely a shortage of cash. The younger Z cohort, those who are still at university or school, are still dominated by radicalized nutters who enjoy the cerebral workout of building a case for their own insurmountable unhappiness. But the older Zs are jumping ship fast and mass and leaving the flags, pronouns, and the millennials in their dust. This is an excellent article, and I think Panda, whoever this is, is entirely on point because the one thing that you desperately need to be a super wokey is a lot of money. You also need a lot of time and you, you need all of that so that you can cultivate this idea that you are victimized to keep yourself from having contact with the real world, to prevent you from talking to people who are truly actually oppressed and to prevent you from kind of seeing how everything truly is. The only thing that can really shield you from all that stuff is a blanket of money. It's just a protective barrier between yourself and the real world. And that's exactly what millennials have had. And I think that this author is correct that it's going to go away at this point, which I personally view as a positive thing. I saw also the other day that um, a lot of companies are cutting their ESG staff, which is just so terrible because they're downsizing. It's the first thing that has to go because it happens to be, frankly, the least important part of the company. I think it's great. I think it's wonderful. All right, you guys, let's hop on over to the biggest breaking news on the right wing today. James O'Keefe confirming his departure from Project Veritas in an emotional video statement from headquarters. I did watch most of the video. It is a very long video. It's almost an hour long. It is very emotional. He recalls um, back to his father. He talks about starting Project Veritas. He uses a lot of his charisma. He uses a lot of emotion. I will say that I was not swayed by his words. I would have much rather seen them printed on a page so that I can fully understand his message without getting caught up in the emotion. I view the emotion as something secondary. Founder of High Impact Undercover Journalism Organization is departing after battling his own board for weeks. 
James O'Keefe, the undercover journalist and founder of Project Veritas, posted a video to the website Vimeo on Monday announcing he would be leaving Project Veritas amid a dispute with a nonprofit's board of directors. One American News reporter and Veritas-linked journalist Neil McCabe tweeted out the announcement late Monday morning. Exclusive, James O'Keefe, my friend and former boss at Project Veritas, just read his resignation letter to his former team and board members at their Mamaroneck, New York headquarters, McCabe wrote. James will make his own way as he always has before. That's correct and something that we should all keep in mind. I personally don't care very much what happens to Project Veritas and whatever happens to James past this point is entirely up to him. Good for him. More power to him. He has the charisma to make it happen. He made it happen in the past. I see no reason to believe that he won't do the same now. Known for his various sting operations and undercover stories investigating lawmakers, government agencies, private corporations, and celebrities, O'Keefe sought to hold true to the organization's motto, Be Brave and Do Something. The group's leader was placed on paid leave earlier this month, seemingly related to a dispute over the removal of two board members. In O'Keefe's quest to remove them, the board reversed his decision and issued a memo with more general complaints about the working conditions and management attitude at Project Veritas. To me, this sounds like um, the working conditions at Project Veritas simply boiled over. From my understanding, James was an incredibly demanding boss. He required his employees to take a lie detector test, um, which is understandable given the work that they do. But at the same time, I happen to know that a lie detector literally only looks at like one or two physical symptoms to try to judge whether someone is lying. And there are many ways to get around it. Despite the board attempting to tamp down rumors of O'Keefe's imminent departure, he posted a video to the website Vimeo detailing how he was stripped of his authority. Journalism is reporting things powerful people want to keep hidden for the wrong reasons, he said during the 45-minute long video. Moral wrongs, bad behaviors, as journalists were the custodians of the public's conscience. That's a very high calling, isn't it? And we've gone deeper, as we've gone deeper and deeper, exposing and illuminated corruption, the line separating good and evil becomes more clear, not just in the institutions we investigate, but within one another. Throughout my 13 years doing this, our mission has evolved from simply being about exposing the truth with some hidden cameras to something more transcendent, giving people hope. That's what we do. Now, this particular mission statement sounds very narcissistic to me. And you guys are welcome to disagree with me on this. But when you say that your goal, your role, your role rather is to give people hope, you're literally putting yourself on a pedestal. And it doesn't surprise me then that you can be toppled from that high point. But let's continue. I have felt a lot of despair and seen a lot of evil and felt overcome with various emotions over the past few weeks. You could say I've seen glimpses of heaven and hell of darkness and light. What I take away from these is the gratitude I have. What makes us great is that we do this work because we actually believe in this. We don't sell out. O'Keefe began to become more emotional on camera and said he had his power taken from him and was, in effect, forced out. He then followed up with a story about his father and why he does what he does. I do love many of you, O'Keefe said. I never said it, those words, but I will say it now. I still believe we have a long and bright future together somehow, some way. When I left this office on February 6th, after being stripped of all my authority, I saw my father and gave him a hug, realizing just how honest and real the man he is. Both my parents are as genuine and down-to-earth as a son can ever have. I personally don't appreciate the emotional appeal about the parents. 
I'm very glad that they helped him through the difficult times and he has certainly come under a lot of fire. So I do definitely respect him for that. I just don't appreciate the way he's framing this. He then spoke about his experiences being raided by the FBI and how he felt persecuted by the government. There were federal agents showing up at my parents' house, he related. There were no donors, no supporters, and I was not trending on Twitter. My father went through this hell with me and stood up to those bullies on the front lawn and told them to stop harassing my family. And at that point, that's all I had was him. I was otherwise completely alone. I will never forget that. Now the good news, we're no longer alone. We have millions of Americans who also know who I am. I suppose that is the most important thing at the end of the day, isn't it? That everyone knows who James O'Keefe is? The mission will perhaps take on a new name and it may be no longer called Veritas or Project Veritas. I will need a bunch of people around me and I'll make sure you know how to find me. O'Keefe did not immediately respond to a request for comment. He just resigns and walks out the door to start a new life, said McCabe. Now we'll see, does the organization he created survive? That is a great question. So I pulled up this article talking about five companies that lost their iconic leaders. And the subtitle is, From Disney to Microsoft, What Happened After Company Visionaries Went Away? When Steve Jobs stepped down as CEO of Apple in August, his decision will remain as chairman of the company's board, cushioned the blow for investors and consumers. Though he was in failing health, the idea that Jobs would still be active in the company's affairs pushed aside the larger question of what would happen when he was no longer the heart, brains, and soul of the company. Tim Cook may have been named as his replacement, a succession long since planned, but what would become of Apple if its true leader, spiritually and practically, was no longer in the house? With his death on Wednesday, that question is no longer avoidable. Jobs, as many an obituary has made clear, was an iconic business leader and a true visionary. Even a harsh critic of Apple and its products would be hard-pressed not to acknowledge the masterful way Jobs tapped into the zeitgeist to revolutionize consumer electronics. Apple's phenomenal growth, surviving near bankruptcy to run neck-and-neck with its competition for a bigger market cap in the, the biggest market cap in the world, can be traced in a way rare for any company directly to one man. Steve Jobs was Apple. Now, a lot of what I've been hearing is that James O'Keefe is Project Veritas, and I fully sympathize with this idea. He certainly was the face of it, but I want everyone to remember that the undercover reporters are the heart and soul of Veritas. They are the ones who make it happen. If James O'Keefe were to go into a gay bar and try to get someone to tell him their secrets, do you think anyone would bite? I don't. He's very well recognized and he's made a point of being so. Good for him. That's fine. He's the face of the company. That was his role. The roadmap ahead for Apple without its human embodiment is a challenge other companies have faced over the years. A handful anyway where leaders whose visions transcended day-to-day operations have become synonymous with their companies. How have businesses fared when losing their legends? The following are five iconic leaders and how their companies evolved once they left. Here we have Walt Disney. He created a blue chip entertainment company and an indelible part of Americana with a simple sketch of a cartoon mouse. Guiding that company to enduring success took a little more sweat and a good dose of will. An anecdote that illustrates the mentality Disney brought to his company was the challenges behind Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Production started in 1934 and three years later was in jeopardy when the studio ran out of money. It became known then, at least in whispers, as Disney's folly. Undaunted and driven by a vision of producing a work of mainstream art, Disney cajoled officials at Bank of America to loan him money needed to finish the project. From the day it was released in 1938, the film was hailed as a cinematic classic and the company's fortune changed for the better and forever. When Disney succumbed succumbed to lung cancer, there were plenty of questions about how a company so fueled by his own vision would survive. 
The financial fellows think we're going to fall on our faces without Walt, Time quoted his brother Roy Disney, saying a few months after he died from lung cancer in Burbank, California. Well, we're going to fool them. Fool them they did. They succeeded. Within eight years, Walt Disney Productions had soaring revenues, jumping from $329 million to a hundred and uh, th- sorry, jumping to three hundred and twenty-nine million from one hundred and sixteen point six million, and that growth has continued in the ensuing decades. Last year, Disney had annual revenues of more than thirty-eight billion dollars. So Disney succeeded. Let's see here. Let's look at Microsoft. It has been about eleven years since Bill Gates stepped down as CEO of Microsoft, the ga- groundbreaking company he founded along with Paul Allen, and four years since he moved on from his duties as chairman, in effect giving up final authority over decision and strategy. And yet, no matter who takes the reins from current CEO Steve Ballmer and into the future, the face of the company will always be Gates. <laughs> Unfortunately, Gates nearly single-handedly ushered the area era of PC software. While Apple pioneered the concept of home computers, a notion once scoffed at by IBM and others, Microsoft was the driving force in making them a usable, productive part of everyday life with the ubiquitous operating system Windows. Let's see. While Gates is hailed as a visionary, Balmer's Microsoft has been criticized as lacking any sort, the sort of quantum leap creativity that it was once its defining trait. Missed opportunities have chipped away at its reputation. The company watched Apple, once left for dead and bailed out by Microsoft with a cash infusion, surpass it in market cap revenue and consumer loyalty. The Zune MB3 player and Windows phones were Johnny-come-lately products, and the Visa OS was less greeted with open arms in the extended middle digits. Tablets, well, Microsoft had designs for the courier, but remained solely on paper as, an, as the iPad became revolutionary. Microsoft was too late with, and with too little and lost the game to Apple and Google. Potentially game-changer efforts to buy Yahoo and Facebook were no, notable failures. By contrast, dipping into its $50 billion reserves to buy Skype for $8 billion raised eyebrows among the public and infuriated investors. To Balmer's credit, he was in charge as the Xbox video game system and the Windows 7 OS became hits, but that wasn't enough for hedge fund manager Dave Einhorn, who told a group of investors recently that Balmer's continued presence is ruining your stock. So Microsoft didn't do so well, saying goodbye to their founder. And next we have, let's see here, McDonald's. Chicago area businessman Ray Kroc was a jack of all trades, everything from a jazz musician and radio host to paper cup salesman. It was while selling for companies that made milkshake mixers that Kroc had the inspiration to start what would become a global fast food empire, McDonald's. I think we all know how the story of McDonald's ended. They were doing extremely well. They were the number one in the world for a while. And they were, I think they're starting to go down a little bit as people tend to want to eat fast food a little bit less. Next, we have Sam Walton and Walmart. Walmart did incredibly well, continues to do very well even after Sam left. And then Ford. Ford's doing well, probably not as a, not as well as a company like Tesla, but still noteworthy examples of companies that did okay, and some of which thrived after losing their founders. All that to say, I certainly don't think it's all over for Project Veritas, even though a lot of people are saying that James O'Keefe is Project Veritas. As somebody who's spent my whole career behind the scenes, I am begging you to remember that at the end of the day, the person you see on the front cover of the magazine is not the person who is making things work. The people who are making things work are the people you never see. The people who don't really want fame or attention. The people who don't need a lot of plaudits for their hard work. The people who just do the tedious things day in and day out. 
I used to work every night until 2 in the morning, making sure that TimCast IRL was properly produced, that clips were ready to go, that the podcast was up, that everything was on Rumble, and that everything had thumbnails. And that was just what I did. That was my full-time job. It was fine. It was great. It was cool. It was very fulfilling. Live production was fun, too. Sometimes I got to chip in. You guys saw me occasionally over there. But I want to emphasize the importance of the people behind the scenes. And for that reason, I do not think that Project Veritas is going to be on the way out after this. Although I certainly do wish James the best. All right. This was very interesting to me for sure. Um, Kevin McCarthy is giving Tucker Carlson access to a trove of January 6th riot tapes. That's very interesting. Now, I like Axios because of the way they lay out their articles. Let's see what they have to say here. Yeah, they have like why it matters. Here's what Carlson said. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has given Fox News Tucker Carlson exclusive access to 41,000 hours of Capitol Hill surveillance footage from January 6th riot. McCarthy sources tell me. Who's me? Me is Mike Allen, author of Axios AM. Carlson TV producers were on Capitol Hill last week to begin digging through the trove, which includes multiple camera angles from all over Capitol grounds. Excerpts will begin airing in the coming weeks. Why it matters. Carlson has repeatedly questioned official accounts of 1-6, downplaying the insurrection as vandalism, as he should. Now his shows. Tucker Carlson Tonight on Fox News and Tucker Carlson Today and Tucker Carlson Originals on the streaming service Fox Nation have a massive trove of raw material. Carlson told me, there was never any legitimate reason for this footage to remain secret. Can you guys think of a legitimate reason for this stuff to remain secret? Didn't we just have an entire committee about all the stuff that took place over the course of like a year and a half? Crazy to me. If there was ever a question that's in the public's interest to know, it's what actually happened on January 6th. By definition, this video will reveal it. It's impossible for me to understand why any honest person would be bothered by that. Reality check. The January 6th committee played numerous excerpts of the footage from last year's captivating hearing. Captivating? Show your bias more, Axios. That was not captivating. That was an insane snooze fest. And frankly, 41,000 hours worth of coverage is not exactly excerpts. That's crazy to me. The process with Carlson started in early February, according to a com- com- sorry, can't read. According to to a communication between the show and a McCarthy representative that I was shown. The archive was previously reported to be 14,000 hours. I'm told now it's much more. Flashback. McCarthy told reporters in Statuary Hall last month that he thinks the American public should actually see all that happened instead of a report that's written on a political basis. Yes, he's correct. Pushing for the release of the footage, Carlson argued on his show last month that Washington has a, quote, regime of secrecy and deceit. Yes, literally no one can argue with that. Carlson last year called the attack an outbreak of mob violence, a forgettably minor outbreak by recent standards. And he is correct. Do you guys remember the summer of love during 2020 after George Floyd's unfortunate death? Yeah, he's not wrong. And Tucker Carlson has come under a lot of fire recently for saying a lot of inflammatory things. But I think Marjorie Taylor Greene is certainly taking a page out of his book. Marjorie Taylor Greene calls again for a national divorce. This is this is pretty spicy stuff. I'm curious what you guys think, because I have a kind of interesting take on this and I'm curious uh, if you guys agree with. 
Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene restricted, resurrected, sorry, her calls for a national divorce on Monday, arguing that Republican and Democratic states need to be separated and that the federal government needed to shrink, although it's unclear what prompted the thought. We need a national divorce. We need to separate by red states and blue states and shrink the federal government. Interesting idea, Green said on Twitter on Monday. From the sick and disgusting woke culture issues shoved down our throats to the Democrats' traitorous America last policies, we are done. It was not the first time that Green has suggested the idea of a national divorce. In late 2021, Green said voters brought ruin to California. Voters who brought ruin to California shouldn't be allowed to do the same to states like Florida. I completely agree. As somebody who used to be from Colorado, I watched Colorado go from pretty red to kind of purple to purple to blue because specifically because of voters who were moving from California because they hated California because California sucks because they'd enacted those exact same policies. And the last time I was in Denver, I was so disgusted by what I saw. I was just like, this looks exactly like San Diego and San Francisco. I cannot, I can never keep them apart. San Francisco is the worst one. San Diego is still moderately okay. San Francisco is horrifying. LA is terrible. We've been to both recently. They're awful places to be. I understand why people would want to leave. But at the same time, it's like, why would you not be in favor of blue states doing their own thing, but doing it in their own states, not bringing those policies to the other states? And this is actually something that I've been in favor of for a long time because I have seen personal examples of what happens when blue state voters move to red states. It's never good because for whatever reason, people cannot make the connection between the policies they vote for in November and what happens to them throughout the rest of the year. They vote with their compassion. They vote with their feelings. They vote the way they think is right and meaningful and just so compassionate. And then it turns out those policies just don't work. When it comes to like the sharp um, the sharp light of day, these things just do not make it that they don't, they don't, they don't cut it. They simply don't cut it. And I remember when Trump was making tax cuts and doing all these positive right-leaning things, I was like, wow, these are literally the things that I was pushing for my entire life. And now that I'm seeing them in action, they work great, just like I knew they would. Whereas I think when people from California and from these other blue states vote, they don't ever think about, oh my gosh, this policy is actually going to work. They just think, oh my gosh, this is the most compassionate thing I can vote for. I'm really trying to help people with this. I really think that people will be positively assisted. They'll get more money. They'll have better places to live. Although you see the way it works in California, it doesn't. All they do is bring the exact same method of voting to other states. And this is what they're seeing in Nevada, in Utah. They're seeing it a lot. I believe I call, if, if I recall correctly, they're seeing it a lot in Ohio, Idaho, excuse me, not Ohio. Ohio is a different kettle of fish. We're going to talk about them later. They're seeing it a lot in Idaho and they're like, go away. We don't want you. And in fact, even in Mexico, the Mexican residents are saying, go away. We don't want your policies. We don't want you people. We don't want your gentrification. Stay away from us. This is not what, this is not who we want to be. We don't want you guys to be up in our business 24 seven. We don't want your blue policies. We don't want your left wing Americanism. It just isn't working. 
I personally agree with Marjorie Taylor Greene. I don't think she's wrong. Um, I've actually entertained the idea of literally just like building a wall because you know what's going to happen is if if and when we're lucky enough to be able to separate blue states from red states, the red states are going to do great. They're going to do exactly like Florida. And the blue states are going to go the way of California. And people are going to want to leave the blue states and go to the red states. But the problem is they do not stop voting in that manner when they leave. It's a serious problem. I don't know how to fix it. That's why I was actually in favor of like hard boundaries between the states. But everyone's like, oh, that's actually like civil war material. I'm like, well, I don't know. I don't have a good solution. I'm just saying that I think that it would be good to encourage people to stay out of the red states if they choose to vote blue. In many cases, that works anyway, because a lot of these blue voters don't want to move to states where abortion restrictions are more tight. Um, which is funny to me because like Sweden has like a 15 week ban. Almost all of the countries in the world have almost like a 12 week ban, which is the first trimester, which is not nowhere near what the U.S. has. The U.S. is on par with Canada, China and North Korea. Those are the countries with the most liberal abortion policies. Yes, North Korea. Yes, China. And of course, Canada. And then there's us. So you tell me how liberal that is. I don't think it is at all. All right, you guys, let's take a look at our poll. Does the right need celebrities given the uh, James O'Keefe drama? Yes, let's beat the left by 56%. No, they're distracting 44%. I am going to tell you that I am on the side of no, because anytime we try to play the left's game, we lose. Anytime we try to play their game, we lose because they wrote the rules and they determine, they pretty much determine who wins and loses. They're the ones who came up with a game in the first place. Why should we play their game? That's my stance, but let's see what else you guys are thinking. I'm sure lots of you guys disagree with me on the O'Keefe thing. All we did, though, was read his words, and we looked at some other companies that lost their founders as well. Hey, we fine. Hey, Brie, how's it going? Hey, everyone. Not we fine. <laughs> I'm sorry, you had an autocorrect issue. I have many of those. On Heil Snipes says President's Day was established to create a false boom in the economy, a nice way to steal back the tax returns Uncle Sam just dished out. Win-win. Amazing. That's fascinating. I definitely need to learn more about the history. I'm looking forward to talking about it on Making the Argument tomorrow. No, no, we are fine, says Dad says stuff. St. Miles says, did Putin get the memo on Biden's visit? He did. Putin had a heads up that Biden would be traveling, although Putin is a world leader in the area, so that doesn't really surprise me. Serenko says, Biden had to ask for permission from Putin, LOL. Not sure about that, but I would believe it. Everybody smile says, smile, everybody. And he says, we fine indeed, everyone. We fine indeed. Indeed, we are very fine people. What can I say? You are the finest people on the internet. All my fans are. St. Miles says Sour Patch Lids need their own set of special emojis. I agree. It would just be like a bunch of dancing, dancing Sour Patch Kids. That would be really fun, honestly. Uh, Fear Me It's Bree says, yeah, I think that means Prince Harry. Ah, possibly so. HRH. Yeah, possibly. Todger Harry. Oh, gosh. I don't want to. <laughs> We're going to talk about Prince Harry next. I don't really want to, but this is something that came up and it has to do with censorship and like DEI and all that good stuff and South Park, of course, which I can never turn down. For me, it's Bree says, LOL, low key, want to read his book, but I'm sure it will, it won't be at all good and I won't be directly funding him soon. Haha. <laughs> Get it from the library if you don't want to fund him for sure. Majority doesn't have to be woke, just the ones in charge. That's correct. Comes from the top down, unfortunately. 
Andy says DEI staff, not ESG staff. Well, ESG staff, yes, but technically more broadly DEI staff. Uh, actually, I was looking at banks that were actually cutting the ESG people from their staff. Dad says stuff says it will go away with great violence from the woke religious staff. Not sure. Andy says practically the same thing. Yes, correct. St. Miles, I'll wait until the book makes it to the free take bin. Won't be long. Won't be long. Ugh, I was going to jump on and talk about this too, but my son had a potty training accident. My daughter has a teething fever, so alas, I did not. That's much more important stuff than talking about politics on the internet. And I hope, hope you're able to keep your priorities straight on that count for sure. She says, too bad it didn't happen yesterday when I was recording for tonight. Yeah, that's just one of the things that can happen when you record ahead of time, unfortunately. Everybody smiles, says wokeness only exists because uh, life is far more comfortable than it has ever been in history. Correct. Exactly. We have everything we need. We're more comfortable than we've ever been before. That's where wokeness thrives. We are, we have too much and it gives us the free time to, for example, make up our own pronouns and do other silly stuff like that. Most people in the U.S. live easier lives than the literal kings of just a couple hundred years ago. That's entirely correct. I mention that all the time. John says, James O'Keefe leaving Veritas is like Musk leaving Tesla lids. I'm sorry, but I disagree with your Twitter post today. They won't survive without James. Thank you for your $5. I certainly appreciate your super chat and you're more than you guys are always more than welcome to disagree with me on anything. Trust me, I've been a conservative my whole life. I've been disagreed with my entire life and I'm looking forward to being disagreed with for the rest of my life too. It's fine. I have no issues at all. Um, I only watched about 15 minutes of the video until your notification popped on my screen. Yeah, so the video itself was kind of interesting. The main issue that I had with the video I would have loved to have just read his points on a piece of paper, but I really felt like he was trying to take advantage of people's emotions with the video. Um, and I was really, really intrigued and not in a good way with how much emphasis he placed on himself. I personally do not think that he was Project Veritas and I'll disagree with John here and that's fine. We can disagree with, with each other and be civil. That's okay. That's how we come to a better understanding of the world as a whole. I think that's great. Um, I don't think that he is Project Veritas. They had a board of directors for a reason. They thought it was necessary to do that. And I'm sure James was part of deciding that they needed a board of directors in the first place. Now, what's going to happen next? I have no idea. As I said before, I don't really care what happens to Project Veritas. I don't really care what happens to James. Whatever he decides to do, I'm sure he'll succeed at. Hopefully something good will come from Project Veritas too. I don't think that they're either one or bad groups of people. I think that James is a perfectly trustworthy person, if possibly a bit narcissistic and domineering. Who knows? Great minds are often domineering. Crazy people are sometimes the people who are best to get things done. Andy says, clench your sphincter until you lie and release during the live battery clench. Thank you, Andy. Yes, that is exactly how you beat a lie detector. It's very easy to do. I've also heard said that you can simply just think about something else and that's all it takes to defeat a lie detector test. Crazy stuff. Everybody smiles says my sphincter doesn't clench anymore. Oh gosh, I'm sorry to hear that. Dad says stuff. Did you watch the whole video? It sounds like the bureaucracy of business got a win here. Possible possible. Um, I watched the finer points. And as we read in the article, we read what James had to say about Project Veritas being about him and focused on him and how you'll always have a way to reach out to him. Um, he's not the most important part of Project Veritas. I'm sorry. I really, really think that the undercover people who go in and develop these friendships with people and enable them to 
tell them these secrets are the most important people at Twitter. Uh, uh, no, not at Twitter, at Project Veritas. I'm sorry, but James O'Keefe hasn't been able to do that since the beginning of the business. He's been the spokesperson. That's great. Every business needs a spokesperson, but he hasn't been doing the footwork for years. For years. He probably hasn't done the footwork since shortly after what happened with Acorn because that blew up so hugely right out of the gate and they got so much attention right from the beginning. Soranko says, yeah, but this happens every four years, which is why the left has been able to take over so easily. The right is too busy tearing itself apart. Exactly. Exactly. There's infighting on the right and it's distracting us from focusing on the left. It's very, very frustrating to watch because I don't like this kind of drama. I don't really care what happens with Project Veritas. I want us to be keeping, I want us to be keeping our focus on wokeness on child gender transition surgeries and all the things that really matter that really feel like demonic, like actual demonic influence. I really feel like that's where our our struggle needs to be. This is who our real argument is with. What's hard is even if Veritas does good still, they've lost so much support and trust in people after what they've done that it'll never be the same. Possible. We really don't know. We'll see what happens. As in still does good job exposing and stuff. Yeah. See, that stuff I think will remain. And I don't think we should discount Project Veritas because they still have that role. And without James drawing attention to James, I feel like Project Veritas could possibly be even more effective than they were in the past. But we'll see. Eric R. He should definitely be more stoic about being forced out of his company that he built from the ground up. No emotions allowed. Ish take. Thank you for your commentary. Yes, he should be more stoic. No, he should not try to manipulate people. I felt very betrayed and manipulated by that video. I don't like that. I don't like it from the left and I hate it from the right. Thank you for your super chat and I certainly understand that point of view. Andy, that means you disagree, lol. He, Andy's entitled to his own point of view, just as you are, John. Everybody smile, this is a family show, none of, none of that sphincter talk. Understanding an argument doesn't mean you agree with it. I'm pulling my support from Project Veritas, says fine. You're more than welcome to do that. And I feel like that alone will be punishment enough for them to kind of reconsider what they did. If they did make a mistake, I think that they, because I also read their statement, and their statement was super trashy too, like really trashy. They were talking about, oh my gosh, we're not going to get rid of James. Well, it's been like three days and they've gotten rid of James. So that was a lie too. So it seems to me like nobody's really shooting straight over there. Who knows? Maybe the company deserves to fall apart. Too bad. Quantum Strange Quark, thank you for your super chat, says, I wrote an email to Project Veritas. I told them my monthly donation was over. Lids gets it this month. Stand with James O'Keefe and Lids. Thank you very much, Quantum Strange Quark. I appreciate that. Project Veritas for a long time for me was my Amazon smile donation with every Amazon order I made. Thankfully, they're stopping that so I don't have to do anything with it. Amazon's done with that smile donation thing, but whatever. I don't care. They'll never get another dime from me. Many such cases, Lori. My gut tells me that big pharma money was involved in Veritas board. The Veritas board, I think, was set up like seven years ago. I'm not sure. I need to fact check. Pretty sure it was long, 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 long before Pfizer was ever on anybody's radar. But I could be wrong. And he says, Project Veritas is filled with awesome people that Liz and I have gotten to know. A few of personally, that's correct. We've met James on several occasions. The company itself is full of super nice people, like people who went out of their way to remember our wedding, for example, who made like very personal like attempts to be warm to us, which I always really appreciate. Like Michael Knowles was very much the same way. He remembered both Andy and me. Um, and it was really nice. It's like, it's fun to get to know people on a slightly more personal level than just like the, 
oh, look at us. We're up in front of cameras. We're doing stuff for the cameras. We're very famous and very important. Dad says stuff, says, I bet the core people go with him. That's exactly what I thought, too. I bet you, Nickel, that a lot of the good, the good, solid people right in the middle who do the hardest work are probably going to follow along with James. But we'll see what happens. Without James, the money will dry up or big pharma money or worse, we'll take it over. We'll, we'll have to see what happens. I'm really curious. Disney is also evil. So there's that. Yes, certainly. It didn't say the companies were good. Just asking whether they, <laughs> just asking whether they survived or not. And Disney did certainly survive and thrive. Please call me Ad Andy, says Andy. Adney is my father's name. Yes, there's a lot of autocorrect going on in the chat today. Thank you guys all for joining me for sure. Papa John got us a massive order of pizza at Timcast and eated every pie very... Wait, what are you spelling over here, Andy? And eated each pie very scrutinously. Very good spelling. Good stuff over here. I can't read this stuff. Goodness gracious. Good work, everyone. Best button pusher ever. Thank you. I appreciate that. There's one other super chat I want to read here. <laughs> Zomji, this is awesome. LOL says, please, mommy and daddy don't divorce. Sad face. Nobody's getting divorced. Honestly, I really would like this infighting on the right to just stop. To just stop. And I really feel like this is one of the downsides of celebrity culture. Oh, I love James O'Keefe. Ah, oh, I care more about James O'Keefe than I do about Project Veritas. I'm going to argue with you if you like James O'Keefe and I don't. I'm going to argue with you if you like Trump and I like DeSantis. Stop. We are all focused on the big cultural issues that we really care about. We all really care about things like kids not being exposed to drag queen story hour. That is the really important stuff, not whether James O'Keefe gets to stay with his company. I'm sorry, it is even bigger than that. It's about corporate culture once the founder leaves. If the people at the head get poisonous, it will fail, especially if the ousting was corrupt. That's fair analysis. I do think that's fair. And yeah, certainly if this was corrupt, people are going to look at this. People within the company are going to look at it and be like, that wasn't fair. I'm leaving. And then they'll be able to find something else because the right wing is a growing movement. And if you worked with Project Veritas, you're good. Anywhere you apply, pretty much, you'll be able to work with like anyone. You pretty much have a guaranteed golden ticket anywhere else you want to work, which I think is great. I think that's how it should be. I think we should be, I think we should be building this counter economy, like the parallel economy. You know what I mean? Uh, the kind of payment system that Dan Bongino was building where you don't have to use PayPal or Venmo or anything like that. That's the important stuff is building that alternative to the left wing nonsense, because we know for sure that nobody's going to hire, nobody on the left is going to hire a Project Veritas employee. All right, I just bumped my camera. That means it's time to switch to our next story, which is about Meghan Markle. I know you guys love talking about her. She's your favorite. Here we have the South Park drawings of Meghan and Harry. This was a hilarious episode. I only saw a little bit of it because that's how I see South Park anymore because I'm an adult who doesn't really have a whole lot of time to watch South Park anymore. The Duchess won't watch the episode mocking her and her husband, sources say. Okay, so she won't even watch it. But she's very upset at her depiction in South Park. It literally just looks like her with her little hat and her cute little dress and her sign that says, stop looking at us and her husband's sign that says, we want our privacy. <laughs> I love it so much. Meghan Markle and Prince Harry as depicted by South Park. Harry and Meghan have yet to publicly speak about the last week's episode of South Park, presumably because they don't have the staff left to formulate a press release. 
But California sources claim that Megan has spent the last few days upset and overwhelmed about how she was portrayed. Oh, oh no. Did you know that South Park said that they they designated her as a victim? And here she is being upset and overwhelmed. Oh my gosh. It's almost like she's a victim, a professional victim. That's crazy. It's almost like that depiction of her was spot on and she can't stand it. If you read anything about Harry and Meghan over the last three years, you'd think that the pair would be delighted with how South Park parodied them. The entire, the entire episode, titled The Worldwide Privacy Tour, gives them enough fodder to moan about for more books or Netflix documentaries or Spotify podcasts. Meghan can cry about how she's a victim of misogyny and Harry can claim that this was all a narrative concocted by the big bad press and probably the royal family. In fairness, South Park didn't hold back. Megan is described as a sorority girl actress influencer victim by a brand manager during the episode. She's all of those things. That's entirely on point. Perfectly done. Later on, Harry has an awakening, realizing that their obsession with branding has made them turn themselves into products. He claims that there will be no more magazines and Netflix shows. We can just live a normal life. However, when he leaves, Megan decides to stay. So the prince exists, exits alone. Ironically, after the episode aired, rumors began circulating that Harry and Meghan were so frustrated with the show that they were now taking it out on each other. At least their spousal disagreements are taking place in a nine-bedroom, 16-bathroom mansion. No awkward passings in the hallway for them. Oh, these poor things. I just Doesn't your heart bleed for these poor victims of such serious oppression? Sources claim that Meghan is annoyed by South Park but refuses to watch it at all. But for Meghan, this couldn't have come at a worse time. The Duchess is said to be obsessed with her half-sister's litigation. Meghan's half-sister, Samantha Markle, is suing her for defamation following their tell-all interview with Oprah Winfrey. The Duchess had previously filed a motion to stop depositions in the case from taking place, but it was dismissed by Florida Judge Charlene Edwards Honeywell earlier this month. Good. I want this woman to be dragged through the mud. I wish that she... I used to have a great amount of respect for Prince Harry... He fought for the UK. He deployed to Afghanistan. He was, uh, actually appeared to be a pretty good leader for his troops there. He really enjoyed hunting and he had all of his own guns. Well, he got rid of all of those when he got married to this dear, wonderful woman who then pushed him into a life of constant talking about how they're so oppressed. And I ultimately just really feel bad for him. But at the same time, he had the autonomy. He didn't have to marry her. Well, let's continue to read. The Duchess had previously filed. It was denied. Then there's the coronation. Meghan and Harry are supposedly weighing up whether they will attend or not. But according to sources close to her, the Duchess feels excluded from the whole thing. Probably better to leave it then. Yeah, you know why she feels excluded? Because she's made herself excluded. She went into the royal family and she made herself incredibly unlikable by everyone. And now she's like, oh my gosh, no one likes me. I don't understand this. This is part of the reason they live in the U.S. instead of in the U.K., Aside from all of this, the pair have been made aware that nosy journalists, ahem, have been poking around Archwell and asking serious questions about what they actually contribute. That is a good question. This comes after the couple released a report touting, tooting their own horn. Sources claim that the friction between the couple stemmed from the negative reaction after Harry's memoir, Spare. The BBC published a review that called the Duke's memoir the longest angry dunk, drunk text ever sent. Oh my. James Marriott from the Times of London called it a 400-page therapy session for Mystic Harry. However much money it provided the couple, it wasn't enough for Meghan, who is said to be embarrassed by the whole thing and seeking support from mentors. Trouble in paradise? Jeez. Good for them. They are so far above this whole South Park thing. 
I heard a rumor that they are also weighing up whether they should talk to lawyers about how they were depicted on South Park. And let me tell you, buddy, South Park knows how to do satire. They know how to toe the line so they don't get in trouble. And this is how they've been able to make fun of pretty much everyone since the beginning of time, except Islam, and got away with it. So honestly, good for them. I hope the royal couple does decide to sue them and they end up losing. Ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. This is what happens when you decide to pursue celebrity. And let me just say, it does not end well. If you aren't going into it with a proper mindset, if you're going into it with a great sense of narcissism, you're going to have serious problems and you're not going to end up being very happy. I'm pointing no fingers at James O'Keefe. I'm just saying this isn't a route that the right needs to or should want to go down. I think this is something we should avoid entirely. And I know that we put more emphasis on individuals than the left does. And I honestly think that's one of our greatest strengths. But at the same time, we need to make sure that we don't allow the people who are uniquely charismatic to take advantage of us. We need to be wise as serpents and gentle as doves, as the Bible says. I think that's the only way to proceed so that we don't end up with a situation like Meghan and Harry. Andy says, can you imagine criticizing royalty? How dare they? They were anointed by God. I'm still talking about dear leader James O'Keefe, of course. <laughs> Thank you, Andy. Uh, St. Miles says, I don't think the Brits want them back. Yeah, I don't blame them at all. Literally, the only reason people know that Megan is part black is because she brings it up in every other sentence. That's correct. UK is focused on 15-minute cities. Yes, I heard that too. Very interesting. Haven't had a chance to read all that paperwork, but it's a very interesting side effect too. Solid Monkey says they are public figures. LOL, that's correct. It's very difficult to prove that someone was trying to defame you or slander you if you're a public figure. Sarah Patch Kids emoji and a gingerbread man says Kenan Smith. Kenan, welcome to the chat. Love it. If you want a normal life, caress the like button, says Stuart Walker. That's great advice. I can get 100% behind that. And I see still, like, yes, let's beat the left. We should have celebrities is still winning 61% to whatever else is left. All right, that's fine. You guys are welcome to disagree with me. I just don't think that celebrity is the right way to try to beat the left. All right, you guys, let's hop over to our next article. We're going to talk a little bit about Ohio. Health clinic to open in East Palestine as residents report burning eyes and terrible headaches after train derailment, despite officials saying the environment is safe. And I just wanted to point you guys in the direction of this ridiculous tweet that, I, if I recall correctly, is thoroughly uh, ratioed. Yes, thoroughly ratioed. 148 likes. 391 comments, only 277 retweets. Enjoying a glass of clean water in East Palestine at Director Vogel, Lieutenant Governor Husted, and Representative Bill Johnson, Mayor Conaway, and Fire Chief Drabeck are happy to see good data results that show the water in the village is safe to drink. Somebody pointed out that if you look over here on the very left side, and I can't confirm this, although Andy did look up what one of these bottles looks like, this looks a heck of a lot like a smart water bottle. And I just thought, wow, nothing would surprise me less. And that's exactly what I put on my Instagram too. I was like, seriously, this is exactly what happened in Flint, Michigan, wasn't it? Didn't Obama go there and pretend to take a sip of gross water there too to pretend it was fine? Yeah, we know Flint wasn't fine. This East Palestine stuff is going to be a lot like Flint, I'm convinced. Nurses, mental health specialists, and toxicologists will be on hand at the clinic, but I thought it was fine. Residents in East Palestine are be and beyond have reported coughs and headaches. What we know about the toxic soup of chemicals released from the train derailment. 
Ohio health officials are launching a clinic to treat residents from the follow of the catastrophic train derailment in, on February 3rd. The announcement comes after residents report a wave of sickness despite officials ruling there were no health hazards detected in the town's water or air. Some report burning eyes, loose stools, and headaches since the crash. So you have affecting mucous membranes, digestive tract, and of course, you know, the breathing apparatus which would affect your headache. Toxic chemicals such as vinyl chloride, benzene, isobutylene were leaked after Norfolk Southern train 32N derailed near the small town on the border between Ohio and Pennsylvania. Substances released during the incident can cause symptoms that match the nausea, dizziness, and shortness of breath residents have suffered since the event. 50 train cars derailed, animals found dead since the crash. So here we have death possible and injury possible. Oh yeah, it's right on the border of Pennsylvania. Interesting. Okay, so this is Lake Erie up here. Oh, cool. Okay. Oh, wow. It's really close to West Virginia, too. That means it's going to be affecting Maryland, too. Wow. Interesting. I live in Niles. All three of my kids are coughing, puffy eyes, bouts of nausea. I'm concerned and don't know where to go or start. We live six miles away and had a giant black cloud come directly over our house, and we have heard crickets. No one offering to test our air, water, or soil. We were away at the weekend of the derailment, but when I came back that Sunday, my eyes started burning and have been doing so since. I have a cough. Both my kids have a cough. They are going to a pediatrician Wednesday so they can listen to their lungs. I'm exhausted. I feel really bad for all the people that live here, just as bad as I feel for the people in Turkey, because nobody asked for this. It happened suddenly. They had no say in it, and then people are just like especially in Ohio, these people feel really abandoned. In fact, Donald Trump is really capitalizing on this, and I certainly don't blame him. Trump blasts Biden for choosing Ukraine on President's Day over Ohio. They were abandoned. Trump is heading to Ohio to support residents dealing with catastrophic train crash. Former President Donald Trump on Monday blasted Joe Biden for spending President's Day with Ukrainians rather than with the victims of a devastating train wreck in Ohio, suggesting it sent a powerful message of neglect to voters in a key election battleground state. Those are great people, and they were abandoned, Trump said in a wide-ranging interview set to air on the Just the News No Noise television show on Real America's Voice on Monday evening. Biden has yet to visit the residents of East Palestine, o Palestine, Ohio, more than two weeks after train derailed, caught fire, and spewed toxic chemicals into the environment, killing animals and fish and raising worries about contamination of air and drinking water. The Biden team belatedly dispatched the Environmental Protection Agency chief and Federal Emergency Management Agency, but has rejected making disaster declaration. Trump, who's running for president again in 2024, will be visiting Ohio on Wednesday and suggested Monday his announcement prompted the Biden administration to kick into gear after a slow response that has drawn bipartisan derision. Hello, Adrian. Thank you so much for your super chat. The little dancing avocados are always appreciated. I'm very glad you're able to join, join us. Thank you for making that a priority. I know you're enjoying dinner with your spouse and I hope you have a nice time. I do have to say, I really hope that when Trump goes to Ohio, that he keeps the emphasis on Ohio and on Biden's failure to those people there, because it is very easy for him. I've consistently seen him do this thing where he just turns it into the Trump popularity show. I really don't want that for the people of Ohio. They certainly deserve better. They deserve to be recognized for what's happening to them, and they deserve more attention to their case. And honestly, they deserve a heck of a lot more government support than Ukraine ever has. Um, a lot of jokes being made about um, the people in Ohio just holding up a Ukraine flag and pretending to identify as them so that they can get some of those sweet, sweet funds. 
but I don't know if that would even work. It certainly hasn't so far. Um, President Biden's focus has been fixed overseas, like 100%. He doesn't seem to care at all what happens to the people in Ohio, which is incredibly frustrating. If their stance is that all of those chemicals being forced into the atmosphere and ground is no problem, then they should chill on carbon emissions, says Misanthrop. I completely agree. Everyone's asking, where's Greta? You know, where's John Kerry? Why doesn't anyone seem to actually care about this actual environmental emergency? And the, the fact of the matter is that everybody who pretends they care about something like that is literally just in it for the money. Like John Kerry flies around in his private jet. Greta doesn't actually believe what she says. None of them believe what they say. They're just in it for the fame. They're just in it for the clout. They're a bunch of narcissists too. They're celebrities. It's a weakness. It's not a good thing. The people who pretend that they're on the side of all these causes, they literally just want all eyes on them. This is always the case. They want attention. They want more money. They want more power. They want you to think it's an emergency that so that you give them a bunch of money. But when it actually comes down to it, when it actually hits hits the ground, you need to know that they're not going to be there because they actually do not care. This is what happens with all of these activists who are also celebrities. I'm telling you, celebrity is not a positive thing when it comes to wanting actual change and trying to actually pursue the truth. All right, this is a positive thing. So I saw Kenny Zhu's name, so I felt like I had to bring this up. Group advocating for race-blind America demands woke UNC medical school stop injecting social justice issues into its curriculum as it attempts to force doctors to be activists and politicize medicine. I don't know if you guys saw the recent um, medical like class swearing in where all of the uh, students had to repeat this kind of motto or pledge talking about how they were going to fight white supremacy or whatever. This happened at UNC. And Kenny Zhu, who we had on Timcast IRL and who wrote um, An Inconvenient Minority about Asian minorities working against wokeness, um, his organization is fighting against this. And I'm so happy to see it. Like, this is not just one person. This isn't Kenny Zhu giving himself airs by being like, I'm the very important face of this movement. No. His organization is called Color Us United. It's a nonprofit that claims to fight for people who are upset by government, corporate, and medical media claims that America is a hateful country. That is a fantastic motto. Its most recent initiative is a bid to stop the UNC School of Medicine from implementing social justice into its teaching, which the school is attempting to do via a task force that gave recommendations in 2020 that's taking advisement from the Association of American Medical Colleges. That sounds like a very compromised, like, source. The American College of the Associated American Medical Colleges. Ridiculous. The task force claims a wealth of literature has demonstrated disparities in healthcare access, quality, and outcomes. We have now, we now know these disparities are apparent both across our healthcare systems and within most individual providers' patient panels. The AAMC protocols also require medical students to study issues like unconscious bias awareness. Oh boy. This is uh, DEI stuff right into medical care, and it's going to be a serious problem. Understanding and responding to microaggressions and understanding that America's medical system is structurally racist. Oh, it's crazy. Everything the left says, that's crazy, is all at the forefront and people are being paid to push it. That's wild. Who would have thought it? The task force's stated goals include finding environments where diverse groups of students thrive, training in areas of social justice and DEI, recruiting students from diverse backgrounds, eliminating racist content and terminology from the curriculum, 
avoiding implicit bias in treatment and allowing students to advocate on behalf of patients. The UNC confirmed uh, which of the recommendations they would be implementing in a 2022 report. Ultimately, it wants all faculty to be trained in these methods and be judged based on their ability to integrate it into their teachings. But Christian Watson, a spokesperson for Colorus United, told DailyMail.com, this is little more than an attempt to force doctors to become social activists and send the medical field toward politicization. A big part of this is accrediting agencies that have been taken over by people with some political ideas. The AAMC, the body that accredits all medical schools in America, has certain requirements it has to follow. He noted that the University of North Carolina, a part of the state's hallowed research triangle, has taken at least 89 of these ideas from them. That's dangerous. They also argue that North Carolina is going to be teaching students that many health disparities are caused by racism. They want to subject professors to implicit bias training, actively discriminating against whites and Asians, Watson added. Teach anti-racism ideology. They're teaching them how to be anti-racist as opposed to be how, how to be good doctors. Yep, and here's Christian Watson, spokesperson for Colorist United. Colorist United, which aims to get 10,000 people to sign a petition against these initiatives, says this ideology is spreading, but that North Carolina is particularly important given its status as a state school. North Carolina is the flagship institution. It's not only subject to AAMC, but taxpayer dollars, Watson noted. We think it's quite significant taxpayers know what kind of education these doctors get. While Watson believes there is some place for debate on racism and equity within the classroom, he doesn't believe that the efforts of the AAMC are appropriate or done in good faith. He said, I think the premise of the program is that we need to integrate social justice into medical education is flawed. Doctors are not meant to be social activists. Doctors are meant to care for their patients. There's nothing wrong with having conversations, but they should be done on a neutral basis. Not, not one that affirms a particular viewpoint. They are basically posting a left-wing viewpoint about their health disparities to the exclusion of others that may challenge that, he added. Their organization said in a press release it wants the UNC Medical School to renounce their commitment to the social justice and affirm the importance of colorblind, meritocratic patient care over political activism. Good for them. This is a wonderful organization. You guys should definitely check out Color Us United. Kenny Zhu is a wonderful young man, and I really liked what he had to say when he joined us on Timcast IRL. He's very young as well. You guys should definitely check out what they're all about. I'm going to end. I think oh, there are a couple things. I just want to mention this in passing. The IRS leaked thousands of American tax filings. Congress demands to know if it was political. The leak may have political motives since it was used to prove, as ProPublica put it, that the very richest pay lower rates than the merely rich. Fascinating. Okay, that's a very interesting story. You guys should definitely check it out. That's in the description under this video. But I wanted to end on this story. Teens spent the pandemic in front of screens, and we wonder why they feel hopeless. Opinion from John Gabriel, whom I appreciate. He's a good follow on Twitter. Teenage girls are experiencing despair at all-time highs. As the parent of the as the parent of a college-age daughters, I have a few ideas why. The kids are not all right. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, teenage girls experiencing despair are at an all-time high. Thank you, St. Miles. Great show for Dippin' Dot Treats or Toys. Thank you so much for your super chat. We really appreciate those. The pets especially do too. They are wonderful. I gotta post more pictures of them at the Lighter Dips on Instagram. In a, reporting released, in a report released on February 13th, the CDC analyzed trends from the annual Youth Risk Behavior Study, which focuses on the health of the U.S. on the health of U.S. high school students. 
In 2011, 36% of teen teen girls reported feeling persistently sad or hopeless, a very bleak report in its time. Fast forward to 2021 and 57 report those dark moods. Of the teen girls surveyed, 30% said they had seriously considered suicide in 2021, a dramatic increase from 19% in 2011. No single cause, but social media is a part. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree. It is a big part. What caused this misery overwhelming most American middle and high school age girls? The CDC didn't say, despite their alarm at the results. No one can blame the collapse on mental health of in mental health on one single factor. But as the parents of now college-age daughters, I have a few ideas. There are all the usual issues tied to poor outcomes, including family breakdown, the drop in religious affiliation and practice, and the difficulty and expense in finding behavioral health care. But all of the above were true in 2011 as well. So what changed? Instagram was released in late 2010, Snapchat in 11, TikTok in 2016. COVID-19 forced a life filled with screens. This is a political cartoon called The Carnival Mirror. Here's a perfectly average looking teen girl. And in her phone, the reflection shows that she is horrifying. She's very fat and she's incredibly ungainly and awkward. Meta, Instagram's parent company, found that adolescents face challenges with social comparison, social pressure, and negative peer interactions on their app. The internal studies showed that teens who struggle with mental health say Instagram makes it worse. A university study from Singapore showed that teens who received fewer likes reported more negative emotions and thoughts about themselves. As Mitch Prinstein, the chief science officer of American Psychopathy, the American Psychological Association put it, kids have a biological vulnerability to want social rewards and now we're handing them a way to get it on steroids. Yes, very much like fentanyl. Now COVID-19 entered the picture. Beginning in 2020, teens were locked out of schools and extracurricular activities to embrace a life mediated entirely by screens. And this, I will here argue, was entirely the failing of parents to not step in and say, okay, you're not going to be at school, so we're not going to allow you complete access to your phone 24-7. That's not going to happen. We're going to have very strict rules around the phone. And I remember when I was younger, people thought that my parents were crazy for saying, no, you can't have a real smartphone. No, you can't have unlimited access to your phone. Your parents should be able to just snatch it out of your hand and say, what's this? And of course, you can have the conversation about privacy and boundaries and all that good stuff. But you need to go through life with the understanding that someone can always say, hey, what's going on here? Who are you talking to? Who is this number you're texting? And so it would have been when I was in high school. Most parents discouraged kids from wasting hours on laptops and smartphones. During the COVID era, it was widely encouraged. Teens spend their daytime hours in Zoom classes and the rest of the day texting with friends or doom scrolling alone in their bedrooms. So depressing. After spending a year or two huddled over flickering screens, it's no wonder depression, anxiety, and suicidal ideation soared. There are no solutions, only trade-offs. The adolescent mental health crisis shows up among every race and ethnicity, and while the numbers aren't as dire, teenage boys are also struggling. In 2021, 29% of boys felt persistently sad or hopeless, up from 21% in 2011. According to the report, 41% of teen girls had experienced poor mental health over the last 30 days compared to 18% of teen boys. Social media can be a powerful means of connection, and protecting both teachers and students during the pandemic was essential. But as always, Thomas Sowell's maxim is correct. There are no solutions, only trade-offs. Today, the bill is coming due, just like many of us knew it would. 
Will we learn from our mistakes? Teachers unions and many public health leaders focused on COVID-19 alone and refused to consider the dismal after effects in mental health or academics. In October, the National Assessment of Education Pro- Progress showed that student achievement plummeted, math scores fell in nearly every state, and the lowest performing students saw the largest decline. That's right. It largely affected poor kids and kids who were already in dire straits. We were promised that kids are resilient and anyone who questioned school closures were grandma killers. But the real world is always more complicated. Teens face a lot of pressures today that didn't exist when we were coming of age. But it is critical for leaders to learn from their tragic mistakes and ensure they never repeat them. John is a Mesa resident. Ah, oh, there you go, Tucson friend. You have a friend down in Mesa who's writing good conservative articles for AZ Central. That's awesome. Very cool stuff. Well, that was really depressing, and I didn't mean to leave you guys on a down note, but I just wanted to bring that to your attention. So that's kind of been something that's been bothering me for a little while. It's always kind of troubled me that we don't pay more attention to what happens to our poor kids, um, and we don't seem to notice that our... Um, our willingness to stray from religion and that kind of thing is really kind of a problem. It's not a good thing. Windows phones. Ah, oh, loved mine, says John. Keenan says, I got my first phone when I was 22, only because that's when they came out. Yeah, I got mine when I was like 15. And it was like one of those little candy bar ones that you had to push like a zillion times to get a letter in a text message. St. Miles says, my neighbors bought older flip phones that are locked, can only call 911 and mom and dad. Text gets CC'd to the parents' phones. Interesting. That might be a little bit too far. Well, it depends on the age of the kid, right? You can give your older kids a little bit more autonomy once you've kind of taught them the basics about safety online. But I feel like a lot of these parents are using um, iPad as babysitters, which means that then the kid grows up and they use iPad for school and the laptop for school and the phone for keeping in touch with teachers and fellow students. And then they use it for TikTok and all of this stuff that just rots their brains. It's awful. Uh, I know China is super draconian, but the way that they monitor and make sure that kids don't use TikTok very much is actually kind of inspiring. And it should really tell us something about the nature of the app. It's dangerous to young people's brains. And the fact that China knows that and doesn't care about what happens in the U.S. is really kind of telling. And I think we should view as an act of warfare for sure. We all spent a couple years behind a screen. Yeah, it wasn't good. It wasn't good for anyone. I spent a few movies behind the screen at the movie theater. I was cleaning up and got stuck there when the movie started. So I had to stay behind the screen for a whole movie. See, it's traumatic. I'm just saying you don't want to be stuck behind a screen. It's really bad for you. It's because they're being constantly convinced the world is against them. Yeah, well, when you look at somebody else's pictures of their perfectly curated life, you're like, my life isn't like that. What am I doing wrong? How am I failing? Then you start to think that you're a failure and maybe your picture doesn't get as many likes as other people's and all that stuff is really just like cocaine and fentanyl for young kids who really need that kind of social affirmation. It's really sad. So if you have kids, for sure, make sure they're not using TikTok. Make sure that you are in constant communication with them about their technology and make sure that you're teaching it how to teaching them how to use it correctly and keeping them accountable for sure. Morons in medicine. Fear me, it's Bree says, I never know if you can trust nonprofits anymore. You can read all about them. Make sure you're, you're doing your due diligence when you are looking at who to give money to. It's very important. Yeah, the rash from the chemicals is a normal reaction to the chemical. That was my job 20 years ago. Mixing chemicals for a plastic factory. Jeez, that is Orwellian. Holy cow. 
Why doesn't anybody ask what Greenpeace is? I have no idea what Greenpeace is. I don't ask because I don't give them money. I know the UN is terrible. I can only assume that Greenpeace is not good either. And he said something about John Kerry and the Skull and Bones Association. Very interesting. Adrian says, F all celebrities, they are all D heads. I am inclined to agree. And I really don't want that on the right. I want us to stay as far away from that as humanly possible. Pyramids Breeze says, time for tacos. Should have made this tomorrow. It's not Taco Tuesday. Oh, darn it. You're a day early. Oh, well. Keenan says, you know where Blockbuster got its name. The line at the Blockbuster, the line at the box office went around the block. Interesting. Yeah, so glad that um, Adrian could join us in the chat. This is a really kind of up and down conversation tonight, but still a lot of fun. Find your brand. Everyone's a victim. That's right. Was that a thing? Yep, Sour Patch Kids. Mm-hmm. You want a normal life? Then caress the like button. I hope you all did. Like, share, subscribe, and all that good jazz. We are seven minutes over an hour. We've had a great deal of fun tonight. Thank you all for voting in my uh, poll. Uh, I really wish that the right weren't so enthralled to the idea of celebrity. Hopefully that's something that we can work against. That's something that we really don't need, I don't think. But who knows? It's also part of human nature. I feel like we always, I remember even in the Bible, the Israelites were constantly begging God for a king. And he said, I really don't want to give you a king. I want to be the one who's in charge. But they insisted. So he gave them kings who were human and ended up actually being kind of terrible. So... I need to brush up on that because that was really interesting and it's kind of um, pointed when you look at the way the U.S. is run now and how people still really want that celebrity of having a king or queen or that celebrity. Anyway, guys, I will see you all tomorrow on Taco Tuesday. It's going to be awesome. And you guys make sure you go over and subscribe to Making the Argument as well. That is at Nick J. Freitas on YouTube. We have awesome awesome episodes. We have cool clips. We have a bunch of shorts over there that are a lot of fun to watch as well. You've probably seen Nick in a bunch of his different shorts. They are incredibly popular. You will certainly enjoy them if you do go check them out. We will have another episode up for you guys at about 5 p.m. tomorrow, depending on when Nick's able to record with us. He's over in session in Richmond, Virginia. He is a state legislator over there, so he's getting stuff done too. I will see all of you guys tomorrow. Until next time, How's it going?